Thank you guys for that. I'm very excited about an opportunity that we have for discipleship in our church. In two weeks, on the 31st, we'll nominate deacons. But also, we are at the time where I'm asking everybody in the church to consider whether God would use you for eight weeks of evangelism in our city. In the spring and in the fall, we send teams out in groups of three with a leader and two team members to visit everybody that we can who's moved in recently to the Pine Belt. Our intention is to share the gospel and give them an opportunity to be saved. And along the way, we find the opportunity to minister to great numbers of people, to invite a lot of folks to church, and sometimes to be able to share Christ with them and see somebody give their life to the Lord. And I find that all of us need the opportunity to grow in the discipline of evangelism, but we also need to be out laboring for the Lord. We pray that God would send workers into the vineyard, and I'm asking that you guys would help me with that. So I want to ask you to begin praying now, and know that I'll give you the opportunity in just a few weeks to sign up to commit to be a part of our evangelism team. So I want you to consider right now whether God would use you for that. And I hope that you do. I love it. I look forward to it every year. I want to ask everybody, if you will, to take your Bibles out and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Hey, John, y'all can come out to the aisle. It's a shorter walk for you and it's easier. Okay, whatever's safer and better. Excellent. Hey, Vicki, you want to swing around through this door for me? See, hey, Mike, you want to pop out that way? Our sermon today is going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, and I hope you've turned your, pat, your Bible there already. And what I'd like to ask everybody to do, this is something we haven't done in quite a while, something Brother Hogan used to do with us, but it is extremely relevant for this sermon. As you read with me, would you stand? I'd like to invite the entire congregation to stand to your feet with me. And we're going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through verse 18. And I'd like to ask you to read along with me. And I would like to ask everybody's attention to be on the scripture that you're reading and on what God wants to say to you today. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against every spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Be alert. Always keep on praying. 
for the Lord's people. In today's sermon, from the book of Ephesians, I'm going to preach about spiritual warfare. And I'm going to encourage you to stand. To stand against his schemes and against his attacks against you and your family and our city. And as we stand, I'd like to pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your favor over our congregation today, Lord, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit. We don't ask, Lord, that you protect us from difficulty or struggle. Rather, God, we pray that you would strengthen us to stand in it. Father, we know that we are targets. Father, we recognize that there's more going on in the world than what we see with our eyes. And we ask you, Lord, in your strength to help us stand. Father, I pray for our congregation, knowing that today, right now, many of us, Lord, are entangled in snares from the devil. God, that we have fallen subject to sins that are stealing the joy from our lives. Lord, that are taking away our identity. And I pray, Father, you'd set us free today. That in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would redeem us and rescue us and let us stand. We ask, Lord, that you search our hearts, that you show us what you see, and that in the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would set us free. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Central to today's sermon is the fact that there is more going on than you see. I recommend to you that honestly, really and truly, whether we like to admit it or whether we don't like to admit it, every one of us are involved in a sort of spiritual warfare. If there is a God and His Spirit and His great angels that serve the earth, well then there also are demons that serve Satan himself and want to undo God's work. We don't talk about this much because we're educated, wise, polished, sophisticated moderns and we like to think that the devil and his minions are a leftover figment of the imaginations of our unschooled ancestors and as long as we pursue life with that belief we live as targets and do not even know it biblically we have to believe that there is spiritual warfare all around us the bible is extremely clear that the devil is our real adversary that he prowls the earth roaring like a lion, looking for whom he might consume. So whether you like or don't like the Scripture's teaching about the devil and his minions, I want to wake you up to it today. And I want to ask you to guard yourself so that you're not subject to his scheme. So let's talk about this. Fantastic story. Carlton Sledge is my new hero. Carlton and I were chatting a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me a story about his days in the military that absolutely blew me away. And it's perfect for this sermon. Carlton was in the military. They were doing a nighttime operation. They were training. Trained on a nighttime firing range. It was pitch black. It was the middle of the night. The only thing illuminated out there were targets at the end of the range. Down range, there were targets that were illuminated by small red lights. And otherwise, it was pitch black darkness. Carlton... And the guys that he was with, their task was to tend the targets, to keep them set up, to make sure they're equipped, check them. So during a moment where there was peace on the range and stillness in the black of that night, Carlton and his friends stepped on the range, far down range from the rest of the men who were training to do their job. 
to check the targets. And the stillness of that night was broken with the crack of a gunshot. And the man beside Carlton was shot in the head. And as he reeled and fell to the ground, and his helmet saved his life, but as he fell to the ground, Carlton did what any hero would do. He jumps on his friend to protect him. He clutches him tight, and he tries to signal downrange to tell everybody to stop shooting. He takes out his flashlight, he holds it in the air, and he starts to wave it in the air above himself and the friend that he's protecting. He's waving his flashlight, trying to tell his friends to stop shooting. He's waving his flashlight, his red flashlight. And a bullet pierces his arm and flies through his wrist. And he's still holding his flashlight. He said he didn't even know he was hit until everything calmed down and his adrenaline stopped and the blood was dripping down his fingers and his arms. Both guys survived. But both guys were on a firing range where they thought nobody would shoot at them. And it turns out they both were accidental targets. And in our course of life on the earth, if you don't know that you're being shot at, well, you're a fool and you're a sitting duck. And my job today is to warn you that you are under attack, that your marriage is under attack, children, that your future is under attack. My job is to warn you that senior adults here in your retirement, as the devil lies to you and tells you just to stop and live for yourself, that your legacy is under attack. I want you to know that you are subject to the devil and his schemes and he's no fool. So read with me again verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I want you to finish well. I want you to stand firm. I want you to put on the armor of God. And I want you to stand in the day of evil against the devil's schemes. And so what we're going to talk about this morning in worship are the schemes of the devil and the war that you're bound up in. I remember when I was a kid... Kids play the dumbest games. They used to and they still do. One of the dumb games that I remember kids playing, they, they thought it was fun to trip each other. And so you would, you know, if you sneak up behind somebody and trip them when they weren't looking, you thought you were cool. I thought it was extremely annoying. Worse yet was a few years later when I was youth minister and the young kids thought it was cool if they could sneak up behind you and get down like this right behind you. And then their friend, also an annoying person, would walk to you and push you a little bit, and you thought, no big deal, until you hit their buddy, and you fell, and you're extremely embarrassed. Well, I, I have a hunch that that's how many of us feel, that you're being shoved around in life by the devil, and one of the reasons he's got so much leverage on you is because you're not even trying to stand because you don't know that you're under attack. And in, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's told you that God can do more than you ask or imagine. He's shown you that God can do more in your marriage than you imagine, more as children than you imagine, more on His mission. You were dead and you're alive. Now you're created for His good works. My goodness, you can do anything. And He wants you to finish well. And so He wraps up His letter with a warning that while you're accomplishing more than you would ever imagine, in the glory of God, while His Spirit is making you more alive than you would ever imagine, you are under attack and you're under more of a threat than you would ever imagine. Let's take a look at your adversary. I want you to think about this. Paul says he wants you to stand against the devil, and he names him point blank. And if the devil is a myth, then Paul was wrong, the entire New Testament is wrong, and I stand with him. 
I want to show you how real spiritual realities are in the New Testament. Now you and I as moderns, we read right over it, we read right past it. We're looking for a memory verse that's comfortable to us. And so if we come, some, come across something that doesn't fit in our worldview comfortably, we just sort of ignore it and gloss over it. And you might not recognize how many times spiritual realities the devil and his minions surface in this one book in the book of Ephesians you've been reading this book for two months now as a church but let me show you a collection of passages in the book of Ephesians that show you the work of the devil and his minions in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 Paul says that Jesus was raised from the dead seated high above every other ruler and authority power and dominion in the heavenly realms in Ephesians 2 2 when you were dead in your trespasses and sins you followed the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, Paul says the mystery of God was made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That would be spiritual realities, angels, demons. Ephesians 4 verse 27, we are warned not to be angry lest we give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, we're told to stand against the schemes of the devil, against the rulers, against authorities and cosmic powers. In Ephesians 6, 16, we're given a shield of faith so we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the devil. You may not be comfortable with the idea of the devil, but he is very comfortable with you. And it's time we wake up. The reason this is so important is because when I read in this text, Paul wants us to stand against the devil's schemes. And I want to reinforce for you that the real enemy that you're fighting today is the devil himself. And it's demons and spiritual powers that work in the background of your life. I know for you and I, if you don't know the real enemy, you'll wind up fighting all the decoys and all the dummies. But I need you to know you're not really fighting it's each other. In your marriage, you feel like you're fighting each other. In your home, maybe, the bully on the playground, maybe at college, maybe in the workplace. Maybe you feel like in the social sphere, you're fighting each other, we're warring each other. But the real war is not between each other. It's not with flesh and blood. It's with powers and principalities. Look at what the text says in verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and the words he used, the words he used translate to rulers, authorities, powers, of this dark age and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not rulers on earth, rulers of legions of demons. Rulers in spiritual places. And that might make you significantly uncomfortable this morning. But I want to ask you to stop and think for just a minute. What if this is true? And I believe it is. What if you really are the topic of conversation for some minion of the devil himself? What if there is some spiritual force fueling your addiction, encouraging you back to your dealer? What if there really is some spiritual force that is promoting the antagonism in your home, driving the wedge deeper and begging you to never repent and confess and seek forgiveness? Like what if world rulers, what if politicians or presidents or governors or kings are subject to the same influence? That entire nations are being pushed one direction or the other by a demon that whispers in their ear. It's interesting as you read this text, the last one of those words, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Beneath that text, 
is the word cosmocrator, which means like rulers of the cosmos, powers of the cosmos. Gang, I hate to break it to you, but if we're engaged in spiritual warfare, and here I am, Ben Skipper, five foot nine and a half from Sugarlock, Mississippi, I don't stand a chance if I'm fighting against the cosmic rulers, like the powers of the cosmos. What are we going to do? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to stop fighting each other. Like, recognize that your war is not against flesh and blood. You need to know your real enemy. You're not fighting your spouse. Your addiction is not just about your dealer. You're not fighting against politicians. You're not fighting against your parents. Your bully is being nudged forward by a real evil, an evil that is more real and more powerful than you imagine. And you've got to stand up against the real enemy, and we've got to stop fighting all the decoys. We've got to stop being distracted. Thinking this is just flesh and blood because you're fighting in the wrong way. You need to be fighting in your prayer closet. You need to be putting on the armor of God, not just going out with everything that you've got to bring with your strength and your wit and your power. And you need to know his schemes. The Bible says in verse 11 that Paul wants you to stand against the devil's schemes. In the Greek lexicon, the word does mean craftiness, like ideas. It's not that he's fighting on the battlefield fairly. You know, I, you think about it like this. When the American Revolution, before the American Revolution, this is how we fought wars. We all put on our red coats and you put on your blue coats. We all marched into the most open field we could. We lined up one row behind another. We said, all right, ready? Aim, fire. And we started shooting at each other face to face. That's insane. But that's how we did it. And I guess that's really how we still do it in a lot of ways. And warfare began to change. We won the Revolutionary War with a ragtag militia. With a bunch of under-equipped soldiers and some help from Frenchmen, right? We we won with guerrilla warfare, hiding in the bushes, hiding in the woods, ambushing you on the roads. We won with strategy, with schemes, with craftiness. And I'm going to tell you, when an army fights with strategy, with schemes, with craftiness, they're hard to beat. Ask anybody that's tried to boot through Afghanistan. Ask our veterans that served in Vietnam. Like, wars would be fought differently if we just still lined up and said, whoever's got the biggest army wins. The devil can't fight that way because he doesn't have the strongest army. Think about it. If you were the devil, how would you fight if you knew the victory was already won? If Christ had already died for the sins of the world, if he'd already defeated death and been raised from the grave, if he's already ascended to the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints, if you are the devil and you know that you are done, doomed for the lake of fire, if you know that you've lost, how will you fight? The only chance you have is strategy and schemes and wit. And so he's got you fighting decoys. And you don't even know that you're a target downrange from him. But you are. What are his schemes? I think it changes. I think he lures you in with a web of lies and idols. When you're a child, he lures you in with disobedience, with the pleasure of being right, with a challenge to your parents that you don't have to obey anybody. You're in charge of you. Do what you want to do. He suckers you in as a teenager to 
believing that you can have freedom under his rule, reject God's reign, reject the church, your grandparents, your parents, do what you want to do. Freedom is your ultimate value. Nobody can tell you what to do. As a college student, he seduces you with wisdom. He makes you feel so wise and noble that you know more than your parents, more than your pastor, more than your grandparents. You have arrived, and he seduces you with knowledge and pride. As a young woman, he deceives you. He corrupts your self-identity. He lures you in and lies to you about your inner beauty and your outward beauty. He tells you what you need and what you don't need. And he destroys your self-esteem. As a young man, he makes you forget your heavenly father and you lose your mentor, your pattern of wisdom and self-sacrifice and love and courage and justice. And as a man, you chase after false dreams. You chase after pornography. You chase after your ego. You chase after your pride. And you lose yourself in a web of lies and become a prodigal far from your father. What are his strategies? He lies to you and gives you pornography. He gives you lust. He gives you shame. He fills your heart with hate and not with forgiveness. He drives the wedge of pride between you and your parents. He tells you that you're better off because you're right to not repent, to not seek forgiveness. He gives you ample anxiety. He makes you chase the almighty dollar and convinces you that you're right to do so because everybody else is doing the same. He lies to you and he tells you that it's time for you to retire from the kingdom, that you've done enough. You should sit in a rocking chair and spend your last years sipping iced tea and coffee, reading magazines and collecting shells. How does he fight? He gives you a thousand idols to chase. And he makes you forget your heavenly father. He whispers lies into your ears. He hooks you. He makes you an addict, not just to drugs, but to your arrogance, to your pride, to wealth, to luxury and comfort. He wins his wars against you, not face to face in a field of battle, but by teaching you to distrust God and his words, by distancing you from your heavenly father. Those are his schemes. You and I have watched this work itself out over generations. We felt the pain of his schemes. We've been hurt. We've suffered. Have we suffered enough yet? Are we ready to stand? We've watched it for generations. As we see our young people reject the teachings of God. And we've watched that play out over a 20-year span. And we see them hurt and hooked and broken. We've watched his schemes. We've seen them work. Are we ready to stand? How do you fight this? If if this has been against the cosmic forces, how do I win? In the book of Jude, we're told to be humble. That even Michael the archangel, when he stood against Satan over Moses' body, he didn't challenge him directly, but he submitted to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how will I win against him? And the answer, how do I fight this war? It sounds bananas. It sounds crazy. How do you fight this war? It sounds nuts. You don't fight. You don't fight at all. You don't fight. You stand. You don't fight because the fight has been fought. Because Paul loves this imagery of putting on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. Paul loves shodding your feet with the gospel of peace. You stand as a warrior, but you stand 
Because the fight has been fought. Paul loves this image. He gives it to you in 1 Thessalonians 5. He gives it to you in Ephesians chapter 6. Putting on the armor of God. But I need to show you where this image was born. It was born in the mind of Isaiah the prophet. God gave it to us in Isaiah 59. And in Isaiah 59, I want you to recognize that the first time the armor of God is put on, it's God himself who wears it. The battle is won. Read with me. Isaiah chapter 59, I'll read verse 15 and following. If you don't have your text open, hear my words and let them sink in. Truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and he was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate. And the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done so they will repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. And he'll repay the islands their due. From the west the people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pit up flood. That the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you. Will not depart from you. My words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips and on the lips of your children, on the lips of their descendants. From this time on, forever, says the Lord. If you want the word of God on your lips and on the lips of your children and your children's children, if you want to stand firm, then you want to put on the armor of God, but you need to recognize that the first time this armor was worn, it was worn by your father. That in Isaiah 59, when God wanted to bring righteousness to the earth and he saw no one who could intervene, he put on the breastplate of righteousness. In his zeal, he came to be our defender, our redeemer, our savior. And 700 years after Isaiah, we saw this worked out perfectly well. God himself came to us as Jesus Christ. He lived among us. He healed us. He taught us. He rescued us. And then when the time was right, he died on a cross to save us. He gave us righteousness. He gave us faith. He gave us grace. He gave us justice. He gave us the truth. And now we put on our Father's armor. And we stand in the righteousness of Christ. And what we do is we stand in Christ. We're given a sword of the Spirit and a helmet of salvation that we reach out and take. We wear them proudly. And with our shield of faith we extinguish the arrows of the devil that are flung at us. And with the sword of God's word, we can fight him off and fight him back. But don't be a fool. Recognize the victory is won. The fighting was done by your father. And let's stand in what God has won for you. And let's choose this day and forevermore to put on the armor of God. That you and I would never again be subject to the devil's lies. That we would live in his righteousness. That we would seek truth and righteousness. That if he tells us what sexual integrity looks like, then as a young person we agree with him. As an old person we agree with him. That we stand in his righteousness so that we won't fall to a scheme of the devil. That if he tells us the 
put on the belt of truth and live in His truth and don't be deceived, then we won't fall for a lie or for pluralism or to chase the American dream when it is corrupt and disagrees with the kingdom of heaven. That we won't stand for any idol. That we'll wear boldly and proudly the helmet of salvation that Christ has given us. That we'll stand with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That we will put on our Father's armor. And in the righteousness earned by Jesus Christ, we'll never be budged again. That we'll shod our feet with the gospel of peace, ready to take the message of Christ around the world, to give peace to people between themselves and their Father. And many of you, I pray you'll shod your feet with the gospel of peace as we go out in a few weeks, that you'll be one of those serving on our evangelism teams. When the Romans put on those shoes, they had nails, rough nails like early cleats, so they would not lose their footing on the field of battle. And I'm calling for you to put on the gospel and stand firm in it, to spread it, to preach it, but to be unmoved in it. That you wouldn't be pushed around and tripped anymore. That you would be ready to stand. I had a concussion in college. And I know many of you are thinking, oh, that explains it. No, no, no. I was, I was this way before that. I had a concussion in college. We were playing flag football at Mississippi State. I was an intramural team with a BSU. We were pretty good. Well, this particular year, we were playing a, a game with a pledge class of Kappa Sigs, a fraternity on campus there, and we were absolutely killing them, and they couldn't stand it. I mean, because they showed up, and they were good-looking, athletic, and they thought they were all that. And I'm sure they looked at their intramural schedule and said, oh, we're playing the Baptists, right? We were killing them. So I was playing quarterback for a few minutes, and at that time I was pretty fast. And I was running up the sideline, I'd gotten around everybody, and uh, I was on my way to the end zone, and here comes a guy coming up on my right. Keep in mind, just like the devil, they were done, they were beat, they couldn't win, they didn't have time to win. So they had a different plan. We're playing flag football, I don't know if you've ever played flag football. Flag football is so frustrating to a kid like me that grew up redneck in Mississippi where you tackle everybody, right? In flag football, you don't tackle anybody. You have cute little flags hanging off your belt. And to tackle somebody, you have to pull the flag down, right? So frustrating for me. But I finally learned, okay, just get the flags, right? It was hard for me not to swat their hands. You know, it's a penalty. Well, anyway, I'm flying down the field. I'm flying. Yeah, right. <laughs> about, about like this, right? <laughs> flying. Poor, poor use of words. I'm headed down the field, eyes on the end zone, guys coming up on my right, but I'm not concerned. All I'm concerned with is how much field can I cover before he gets my little flag. And when he gets my little flag, can I do this, you know, so he misses my little flag? Unbeknownst to me, he wasn't coming for a flag. He was frustrated. He laid into me like a linebacker with a great form tackle, and I was not ready to be tackled. I landed on my back, and my head hit the ground. I was dizzy. I got to my feet, and the ref said, are you okay? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And I was, except when the game was over, I didn't know which car was mine. And I wasn't sure how to get back to my apartment. I had a concussion, because that guy, he wasn't going for flags. 
He was mad because he'd already been beat. And he was going for all he could get. Gang, life is a wonderful gift from God. But you need to recognize that you really are a target. That you truly are engaged in a battlefield that is bigger than you would imagine. It's the span of the cosmos. There are no neutral sides. And that if you are redeemed in Christ, then the devil who is defeated will nonetheless use every scheme he can to undo you. To plant a root of anger, bitterness, hate. To choke out mercy and forgiveness and grace and generosity. He'll drive a wedge between you and your church family. He'll separate you from the community of God. He'll ruin your marriage. He'll ruin your opportunity to influence your kids. I stand with Paul the Apostle today. And I ask you to put on your father's armor. And stand in it. And don't be moved again. Like, Don't ever believe there's anything bigger than the cross of Christ. Or the grace of God. Or the purpose for which he laid hold of you. And don't give that up for the devil. Don't chase some wild dream. Don't believe his schemes. If you find it in the scripture, stand on it and don't budge. Kids, don't be lured away by the thousand temptations that your parents warn you against and the Scripture teaches you against. Young adults, don't check out for 20 years thinking that you can build your life on your own strength and then come back to the Lord when you have your kids. Stand firm lest you fall. Put on your father's armor and stand so that when you and I stand before the throne of God in heaven, Together we will lay eyes on the Lord. And together we will hear, well done, good and faithful church. And we will not have watched one another get pummeled and shipwrecked because we thought we weren't a target. Stand. Put on your Father's armor and stand. Father, I ask your grace on our church. Lord, I understand that we are struggling with a thousand temptations. We have families, Lord, that are divided and angry. Children that have been lied to and are broken. Father, I know we have young adults that are seeking themselves outside of your grace. Lord, we are an infirmary full of wounded warriors. And we ask that by your grace you would start healing what is hurt. Lord, that you'd bandage our wounds with your Holy Spirit. That you'd repair what's been destroyed and give us the courage to stand. Father, we'd put on your armor. We'd wear your righteousness, your truth, your salvation, your gospel. We'd hold firm to the faith that you've given us in Christ. And we take up your word. Lord, that we'd hold firm to your word. I ask you, Lord, to help us to stand. I ask for that in the grace of Jesus.